I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and I am here with my guest, Bill Plotkin. After four days alone in the wild, uh, one's consciousness does change, and I would say it, uh, it becomes much clearer, and we begin to see uh, wild things more accurately, actually. It's out by an alpine lake. I got entranced by a spruce tree that was on the shore of that lake, and I was sitting those days, fasting, surrounded by absolute alpine magnificence, uh, offering my reverent attention to the wild world around me. And this particular spruce really spoke to me in some way. I felt it was, or I knew it was, a monk. And my sense was that he was gazing very, very deeply into the world, more deeply than I knew it was possible. After a while, the uh, spruce made a gesture, and I followed that gesture and uh, saw a butterfly. And it actually came as close to brush against my left cheek. And as it did, I felt a communication. And what it said to me was, in essence, um, that my life would be something, would have a lot to do with learning how to weave cocoons, which are spaces of um, transformation, in particular places of uh, death and rebirth. Bill Plotkin, Ph.D., has been a psychotherapist, research psychologist, rock musician, river runner, professor of psychology, and mountain bike racer. As a research psychologist, he studied dreams and non-ordinary states of consciousness achieved through meditation, biofeedback, and hypnosis. He has guided thousands of people through initiatory passages in nature since 1980. Welcome, Bill. Thanks. Good to be here. And you are initially a psychologist, and you have written two books. One of them is called Soulcraft, and the other one is called Nature and the Human Soul. Um, but what I'd like to ask you first is that you're a psychologist out of the University of Colorado, mm -hmm. and that you went to practice psychology in New York in your late 20s. Um, actually, I was a research psychologist uh, after finishing grad school, and I went to New York uh, to take my first university position, uh -huh. and I was um, studying and researching non-ordinary states of consciousness, in particular uh, meditation, dreams, hypnosis. hypnosis. Yeah. Um, and then in your book, Soulcraft, you talk about how you were hiking, and I don't remember exactly where it was, but you were in Colorado and you went up the Ute Pass Trail. Tell, tell us about the beginning of your journey up the Ute Pass Trail. It really began a little bit earlier when I was in New York. And I, I took a hike, a winter hike, snowshoe hike, up a, a peak in the Adirondacks. At that time in my life, um, I, I wasn't deeply fulfilled in my um, faculty position, although it was very interesting. I, it, uh, the, the things I got to study and uh, working with uh, students was, was actually very good, but I wasn't sure that was what my life was about. And I got to the top of this peak in the winter, all alone, and I was perfectly blue sky day, everything carpeted in snow. And uh, I just stepped out onto the summit in my snowshoes, and almost immediately uh, my knees got weak, and this huge ball of emotion came up uh, in through my throat, and I just let out a bit of a gasp or a wail. And somehow I knew in that moment, I don't know how I knew, but I knew that uh, everything I thought my life was going to be was wrong, and that uh, my life was not as a research psychologist. It wasn't even as a university faculty member, and I had no idea where I was really going. Um, and uh, in that moment, I looked out down into the valley, and there was on the edge of a stream, of a river, there was something gleaming on the edge, and I think my psyche was just trying to... Uh, grab a hold of something that I could orient myself by. And it was that gleam on the edge of a river that um, somehow, for me, stood for uh, where I was meant to go uh, in the world, in, in life, and that there was something out there waiting. And all I knew is that I had to wander deeply into the world to find it, and I had to leave behind everything I thought was going to be mine. Uh, and I... Uh, hiked off that summit, and uh, I started doing that. I resigned my faculty position, sold my house, uh, 
put everything I owned uh, into a subcompact Toyota and uh, drove west. <laughs> did you know where you were going? Well, actually, I did. Uh, okay. I, I knew where I was going. I, I, I found a, um, uh, a, postdoc, a postdoc position in um, community mental health in Oregon. And so, um, and I didn't have to be there for a couple of months, so I just got a chance to wander in the desert and the mountains for a couple of months. Uh, and then uh, spent nine months in southern Oregon. And at the end of that time, uh, and I did a lot of wandering, internal, uh, psychological and spiritual wandering during that time, as well as um, spending weekends uh, out in the wild. At the end of that time, um, or towards the end of that time, I had heard about um, the work of Stephen Foster and Meredith Little, who, um, this was in the late 70s, who for a few years by then had been reintroducing uh, what we think of now as uh, the vision quest to uh, the contemporary world. And they were, uh, they were creating a, a, a contemporary form of a, a vision fest. And I uh, heard about them through mutual friends, and I corresponded with them, and I got the basics. So it just sounded like something I needed to do. I knew it, for so many years in my life I had, was someone who felt most at home in the wild world. And I knew from the Fosters that um, a vision quest was a way of finding our deeper place in this world. So I, um, even before I met them, I um, basically dragged myself out to um, uh, the Alpine region of northern Colorado, which you had first asked about. And uh, um, went to a trailhead, and uh, the trailhead um, um, happened to be called Ute Pass Trail. And I just set out with my backpack uh, with not a whole lot of food, but enough uh, gear to keep me safe uh, at about 11,000, 12,000 feet in uh, early September and uh, headed out uh, to enact my own fast. And I, uh, I was a little bit concerned that the name of the trail I was starting on was Ute Pass Trail because on the, my maps it was named something else, something that sounded like a New England place, which is where I'm from. Uh, old sawmill road or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but uh, on the ground, it was called Ute Pass Trail, and I thought, well, this doesn't feel right because it sounds Native American, and I'm not Native American, and I'm out here to do my own version of a Native human uh, solo fast. But um, the trail took me only about a half mile, and then I, I could look at that uh, uh, at, an at an overlook on the trail. I could see where um, the the valley, because I was above um, treeline, I could tell really where I really wanted to go, and there was no trail going that way, and so that was a big symbolic and practical moment for me when I mm -hmm. stepped off Ute Pass Trail and and uh, went my way through the wild. Into the rest of your life. <laughs> Into the rest of my life, yes. So you've written two books, and before we began uh, the interview, you were talking about that the first book that you came out with was Soulcraft, and the one that you've just recently come out with is Nature and the Human Soul, but you thought that Nature and the Human Soul was first. Yes, an early draft of uh, this book, this new one, Nature and the Human Soul, has gone through about 15 drafts. I've been working on it for quite a while, and the first of those drafts was probably complete 15 years ago or so, and... Um, uh, when I submitted that manuscript to a potential literary agent, uh, she read it and liked it in, in a lot of ways, but said she didn't feel it was my first book. And I responded, you must be wrong, because it's my only book. <laughs> I'm not planning to write a lot of books. And she said, no, no, you've got to take the material in this chapter, which was chapter 7, and expand it and make it into a book, and that really should be your first book. And I fought her for a while, but um, I, uh, she was right that the, the most of the juice, the greatest juice in that early draft of Nature and the Human Soul was this chapter, chapter 7, and I expanded that and did make it into what ended up being my first published book, Soulcraft. And it's, uh, it's really 
Soulcraft is really about what my work has mostly been about for 25 years. And also, by the way, that the early draft and drafts of Nature and the Human Soul, they, they, it wasn't ready 15 years ago. There was so much more I had to learn. It had to cook for a while. It really did. And I hope it's, I hope it's ready now. I feel it is, but it's come a long ways. Well, in Soulcraft, because I want to talk about that, you talked about an event, or maybe it was a dream that you had, no, I think it was an event when you were out in the woods up on Ute Pass Trail. You were sleeping in this tarp, a five-foot by seven-foot tarp, and you woke up the following morning and a butterfly came. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. Um, I was out by an alpine lake for five days and nights, and I think it was on the fourth day. Uh, it was a it was actually a couple of days before then that I got entranced by a spruce tree that was on the shore of that lake. I just more entranced by a tree than I ever imagined I could have been. And I was sitting those days fasting, uh, surrounded by absolute alpine magnificence. And this and is Vipassana meditation that you were sitting? Uh, much of the time I was in meditation. Uh, a kind of Vipassana in which I was really... Uh, offering my reverent attention to the wild world around me. And this particular spruce really spoke to me in some way. And uh, by the fourth day of being alone up there in the wild and fasting, sometime in the middle of that day that uh, I looked again at the spruce and I saw it for the first time. And I would say it was the first time I ever saw any tree, really. and this particular tree, it's a little bit hard to translate, but the closest I can tell you is that it, I had felt it was, or I knew it was, a monk, some kind of monk. I could see him in his robe, and he was uh, facing the lake and, uh, and had a tremendous stillness about him and presence. And my sense was that he was gazing very, very deeply into the world, more deeply than I knew it was possible to see into the world. And uh, uh, so I was quite entranced. Um, I guess I should say for the listener, for those who have not enacted a vision fast, after four days alone in the wild, uh, one's consciousness does change. And I would say it, uh, it becomes much clearer. And we begin to see uh, wild things um, uh, more accurately, actually. So... Um, After a while, the uh, spruce made a gesture to its left, and I followed that gesture and uh, saw a butterfly. At that point, a very large yellow butterfly. And uh, it was maybe 100 feet or so away, about as far as you can see butterflies easily. And then I saw it fluttering towards me, and it took a typical butterfly path, a wandering path towards me. And it actually... uh, came as close to brush against my left cheek, actually touched me. And as it did, I uh, felt a communication. And what it said to me was, in essence, um, you are cocoon weaver. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, I should say for the listener that, um, you know, did the, people might ask, well, did the butterfly actually speak in English? And, and the answer is no. It's kind of like, uh, it is like a dream, or it's like an emotion. I think almost everybody would say that um, emotions don't speak in English or any human language. They are strong uh, experiences, and then we translate them, or our psyche translate them and translates them. And then we can say, "I'm sad," or "I'm angry," or "I'm happy," or "I'm loving." Uh, similar in our in our natural human communications with the wild world, is that uh, if we're if we're able to listen to our deep imagination, we feel something, we, we, we receive a communication, and there's no more doubt about what we're receiving than there is in when we experience an emotion. So um, that's what I got from the butterfly, that, um, that my life would be something, would have a lot to do with learning how to weave cocoons, which are spaces of um, transformation, in particular places of uh, death and rebirth. Because I think everybody knows that the one who uh, builds a cocoon is the caterpillar. And the caterpillar is creating a place to die as a caterpillar. So, um, the caterpillar goes into a 
the cocoon, the uh, body begins to liquefy. And there's, uh, after an, a number of, I don't know how long, hours or days, there's no more caterpillar left. There's just a liquid that has the potential to form itself into a butterfly or a moth. So that, um, that's what I received there in the mountain, the knowing that that, that, um, that, is, that was my way of belonging to the world. Or I like to use uh, a phrase from David White, the poet, contemporary poet. He um, speaks of the truth at the center of the image we were born with. And I believe that's a big part of my truth, that image of weaving cocoons. Uh, and the soul does not tell us, I believe the soul does not tell us how to do it. It doesn't tell us what cultural forms or job or career path. It doesn't, the soul didn't tell me to be a vision fast guide or a nature-based soul guide or a writer or a psychologist. It said, you need to discover your own way to weave cocoons, transformation for people, and good luck. <laughs> well, we'll have to come back to the good luck that you have had. After a short break, I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are here talking with my guest, uh, psychologist and vision quest guide, Bill Plotkin. And how can people contact you, Bill? Um, the new book um, has its own website, natureandthehumansoul.com. It's one word, of course, spelled as one word, and also through my institute in Colorado, Animus Valley Institute, and the website is animus.org. And animus is actually um, the Spanish word, better pronounced animas, and it's plural, it's uh, souls. It's uh, the plural for souls, A-N-I-M-A-S dot O-R-G. Great. Well, we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. So stay tuned. Please go to my website, www.attunement.biz, that's A-T-T-U-N-E-M-E-N-T dot B-I-Z, if you'd like to hear more conversations from this show. I'm Anthony Wright, and we're here talking with my guest, psychologist and vision quest guide, Bill Plotkin. Welcome back, Bill. Thanks, Anthony. And before the break, you were talking about the communication that you'd had from the butterfly in being a cocoon weaver and that you would have to find your own tools and techniques. This is about finding one's own calling. And I think a lot of us are wondering about our own calling. And in the first part of the uh, interview, you were talking about that soulcraft is the, the chapter in Nature and the Human Soul that had the most juice. And you have a number of steps that you talk about in Soulcraft, about preparing to separate from the everyday world, pathways to the soul encounter, and returning to the world. In Soulcraft, can you talk to us about those three stages? You, you'd gone off on your own path, you'd severed your links from your own previous world, and now you're into the area of soul development. So. Yes, um, those three uh, phases of... Um the of soul discovery um, are the same three steps that we see in, in rites of passage uh, or um, it's in particular in um, what Joseph Campbell the great mythologist called the, uh, the adventure of the hero uh, the hero's um, descent into the underworld to find the mystery at the core of the individual psyche and to bring back a gift or a boon for his or her people. So um, these are the three stages that we go through. And in um, Soulcraft is essentially a book about practices for the fourth of eight stages of human development. As, uh, my new book, Nature and the Human Soul, is a, a model or a map of um, human development from the point of view of nature. My reading of how nature has designed human beings to develop the eight stages that we go through from birth all the way through elderhood. Um, and um, listeners won't be surprised to hear that um, these eight stages look very, very different from what we, most everybody goes through in the contemporary Western world. I should say um, uh, the majority of people in the Western world don't go through these eight stages. Uh, we tend to get stalled uh, actually, the third of 
age stages, which psychologically is early adolescence. So, um, and I think it's taken uh, several, um, many uh, centuries to, for us to get to this point where of this gradual cultural degradation. Uh, where well, you talk about a paradox about that, about that we don't get beyond that adolescence because the, the, the parents that were raising us didn't get beyond theirs. Exactly. And their grandparents didn't, and their grandparents didn't. And exactly. It, it goes back maybe several thousand years, actually. So there's very, uh, there's relatively few. I'd, I'm going to make, I've been making a guess about 20% of contemporary Americans get to the fourth stage of life, which is late adolescence, which is more mature than what I believe the majority of Americans get to. And again, the book Soulcraft is um, about this fourth stage, and the fourth stage is also, of course, um, written about in the new book. And I call the fourth stage the, uh, the stage of the wanderer in the cocoon. Uh, and because uh, I call it the cocoon because there are these three steps that we need to go through that correspond to uh, the steps of a rite of passage. And the first one is, uh, the first step is dying to our old way of belonging to the world. And the middle step is is essentially being dead psychologically, being neither who you were in your uh, earlier life and not yet knowing and being who you're really meant to be, not yet fulfilling your destiny. And the third step is the return to the cultural world, knowing what your, um, your true way of participating in the world is. So there are these three steps, and... Um, uh, the first, um, the, uh, there's actually two developmental tasks in every, each of the eight stages. And one of the tasks is a nature-oriented task, and one, the second one is a culture-oriented task. And uh, the tasks in each of the stages are different than the other stages. And, um, and uh, it's the nature-oriented task that we have minimized uh, in the industrial con- society. Industrial society, yeah. starting with uh, early childhood. Uh, parents don't know how to help, uh, most parents don't know how to help their um, very young children with the nature-oriented task, which has everything to do with preserving the innocence of a child. That's so, it's the foundation for everything else, and, and including our, and especially our soul life. So how does that how is preserving the innocence different from what people do now? I mean, is it like uh, not uh, throwing all these uh, colorful plastic toys in a crib when a child is really young or having these mobiles uh, hanging above their head uh, of uh, different plastic things? Is that what you're talking about? Well, um, somewhat. There's um, three of the, I think, the major problems in early childhood. Uh, is first um, obedience training. Uh, obedience training, uh, in a sense, pulls a very young child away from their uh, natural presence uh, in the world. And innocence, essentially, is our capacity for present-centeredness. And present-centeredness is our capacity, uh, grows into our capacity for relationship with anything or anyone. We can't, we're not really in relationship to anyone, including ourselves, unless we can be really fully present to them. And that our, our uh, native innocence is essentially our capacity for, for being present. An infant is, has no future and no past. It's just right here, right now. And what a, uh, obedience training does, certainly if it's too much, too soon, uh, it uh, Uh, encourages the child to anticipate what is acceptable and what isn't, and it pulls the child out of the the present. Uh, And there's some trauma that can happen with that. uh, On top of the loss of innocence, there can be all kinds of trauma, absolutely. Uh, A second kind of problem in early childhood is entitlement training, which seems the opposite in some ways. Um, Especially um, middle-class, upper-class parents might... Uh, uh, shower their children with too many uh, toys, uh, too many entitlements. And it gets uh, a young youngster, especially age two, three, and four, 
starting to uh, be in relationship to life from the point of view of how do I need to behave in order to get more things. And that pulls the young child out of the present. And that's really when that conditioning is in full swing. For um, a lot of children, unfortunately, it's true. And the third thing is um, parents who are kind of anxious to make sure their kids get the kind of head start where they're going to compete and succeed and do better than everybody else. And so there's uh, all this uh, early emphasis uh, now on, uh, for example, learning how to operate a computer at, at uh, extraordinarily young ages, age two or less. Competitive kindergarten entrance. Crawling to the heap Crazy. of the, <laughs> of the uh, preschool and so on. And, and this can be very damaging to a child's development if your goal as a parent is to raise a child who has the capacity to become fully human. Now, on the other hand, if your goal is to raise a child who will be most competitive in school, you might, in fact, do better with um, early childhood computer learning and so on, although so many experts disagree with that one now. They say uh, early learning on computers is actually doesn't help children, and some studies suggest it is detrimental, actually. Yeah, because it precludes a lot of the neural pathways. Neurological development and, uh, again, just the, the cultivation of that innocence, yeah. getting into the second stage of life, middle childhood, with that innocence intact, because that innocence is becomes the foundation for... Uh, the development of wonder in middle childhood. Um, I'll make a long story short here. And uh, wonder, which uh, develops most fully through uh, our relationship with nature, our um, opportunity as young as children, roughly age four to twelve, to just play in our own way with other children in the natural world. And that's how we learn really how to become human and how to feel at home in the world. We have to stop for just a moment and take a short break. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. We're talking with my guest, psychologist and Vision Quest guide, Bill Plotkin. And how can people contact you, Bill? Um, through my institute's website, www.animas.org. That's A-N-I-M-A-S dot O-R-G. Great. Well, we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. Please go to my website, www.attunement.biz, that's A-T-T-U-N-E-M-E-N-T dot B-I-Z, if you'd like to hear more conversations from this show. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are talking with my guest psychologist and Vision Quest guide, Bill Plotkin. And Bill, before the break, you were talking about the developmental stages in children, and one of the most important ones to retain innocence was allowing children to play freely in nature to develop a sense of wonder. Can you continue with that, please? Yes. Um, wonder that's developed, uh, that blossoms most fully through our time uh, with alone or with other children in the natural world, that sense of wonder when we get to early adolescence, which right after puberty, that sense of wonder becomes the foundation for our capacity to cultivate personal authenticity. When you think about it for a moment, uh, to be, become an authentic person, to find out who we really are, we have to wonder a lot about ourselves and our relationship to other people and, and what place we're going to have in the world. And uh, so that capacity for wonder it, it becomes essential, becomes bedrock to our development in early adolescence. Without it, uh, authenticity, which almost everybody would say they want, becomes a difficult thing to obtain. Um, and so the, in, in my book, Nature and the Human Soul, I uh, talk about this third stage of life, which I call the thespian at the oasis, uh, as the stage in which our task is, the nature-oriented task in that stage is... Um, becoming an authentic person, or developing an authentic personality, just really on a social level. And the uh, culture-oriented part of that task is um, to develop a personality that's socially acceptable, that works in a peer group in particular. And doing those two things together, becoming authentic and socially acceptable, is challenging in even a healthy society. 
in a society like ours that puts so much emphasis on um, conformity, yeah. it's really, really challenging. When I was in junior high, people would say to me, just be yourself. <laughs> I had no idea what that meant. Yes, the hardest thing to do in life in some ways is to be ourselves. Um, so um, it's difficult to develop an authentic way of belonging to the world in early adolescence, in part uh, because of the emphasis on um, conformity, in part because of the absence of mature teachers and mentors, um, and in part because of the developmental deficits from middle childhood, in particular our, the squelching of our sense of wonder, which started in early childhood with the uh, minimizing or the loss of our uh, uh, inherent innocence as a human being. And so this, by the time we get to that third stage of early adolescence, there's so many difficulties we have from our early development and our, the society we live in that developing that authentic personality becomes really difficult. And because of that, that's why I believe the majority of people in Western society get stalled right there in that third stage. But I think almost everybody gets at least to the threshold. They at least have kind of glimmers of the fourth stage, which is the wanderer in the cocoon. And uh, I want to give you a couple examples of that, of those glimmers. And um, uh, for most even um, vaguely healthy uh, teenagers, uh, young people begin to ask questions at some point about, well, I wonder uh, what life is about beyond getting trained to get a decent job, to make decent money, to buy a lot of stuff. There's got to be something more to life. I mean, that's, that's what mainstream society says. That's what life is about, earning money to get a lot of stuff. Um, but teenagers will begin to wonder about that. And they'll begin to get um, depressed, or if they're lucky, uh, really full-blown grief about that that's the world that they've been born into. Um, other examples that are a little bit happier. Uh, a healthy teenager will, will start to wonder what's the difference between, between sex and romance. Really good question. And that's, that means where the person is, is starting to approach the threshold into the next stage of life. Yeah, and that and that actual question between sex and romance is really blurred in today's hyper communicative culture. Yes, we talk a lot about romance, um, and it's something that's you know alluring to most everybody. Um, and I think people do experience romance. I mean, I'm not meaning to imply other otherwise, but when we really ask what's the difference between sex and romance, and we really go deeply into the mysteries of romance, that's, that's actually a stage four experience. Um, teenagers might also begin to wonder what poetry is, or they might uh, feel like spending some time alone, but not because they're depressed, but um, because they, they want to sit with some big questions. Or they might feel like uh, spending time in nature alone and really being curious about the wild world. But for those people who do manage to cross the threshold into stage four, the cocoon, um, th those people are on, uh, about to embark on a very wild ride. Um, it's, that, it's that death rebirth experience. Um, and then again, the first, the, um, uh, the culture task, actually, of the cocoon is to separate ourselves from our adolescent identity to say goodbye to everything we thought we were. And so in that stage, in a, in a healthy environment or in a nature-based or indigenous tr tradition, the young people would actually be removed from everyday um, society at that point. And they'd be uh, brought to a place somewhat separate from the village where they can be uh, trained in uh, practices that help open our human consciousness to the mysteries of both the natural world and the human psyche. That's the, actually the subtitle of Soulcraft, crossing into the mysteries of nature and psyche. Um, and uh, part of what the elders or initiation guides will teach the young people um, are practices for uh, separating 
one's consciousness from one's adolescent, early adolescent identity. And the other half of what the, the mentors or the guides or the elders teach are specific practices for exploring the mysteries of the world and uh, asking and sitting with those really big questions. And there's, there's just many, many dozens of practices and they're found in healthy cultures and subcultures all over the world, including our own Western traditions. If you look at the mystery schools of our Western religions, we'll find these things. Um, and Soulcraft uh, outlines about 25 or so of these kinds of practices. I call them Soulcraft practices, but I didn't invent them. They're found in nature-based uh, traditions all over the world. And they include things like the vision fast, or uh, certain kinds of dream work, or um, uh, ways of being alone in the natural world, ways of communicating with uh, natural things other than humans, um, uh, self-designed ceremony, uh, very careful uh, nature observation, including tracking uh, of other creatures, and so on. There's quite a few. And these are the practices um, that uh, essentially alter our consciousness and alter the way we are in the world. And they open our awareness to the possibility of receiving, um, or, or actually of seeing a reflection of our own souls, of seeing the truth at the center we were born with. And that's ultimately the goal of the second stage, is to uncover, in more common Western terms, to uncover our destiny, or our sacred calling, or our individual purpose. To uncover the center we were born with. The truth at the center. The truth at the center. Of the image we were born with. So we might say, for, I might say, I guess I've already said it, that um, I believe the image I was born with was uh, the weaving of cocoons. And there are quite a few truths at the center of that image for me that I gradually began to learn uh, starting at age 30, when I had that experience on the mountain, uh, what, it, what a cocoon is, mm -hmm. and uh, how to create um, uh, cultural contexts for people entering that kind of place. But it's really pivotal for one's life to come to understand what that core truth is. I believe it's pivotal to reaching uh, full psychological maturity or true adulthood or becoming fully human. And more to the point, or maybe even more directly, uh, finding that truth, which is unique for each one of us, is the key to the deepest personal fulfillment we'll experience in this lifetime. And absolutely as important as that, it's the key to uh, our most uh, valuable form of service to the world. And you know, in today's, in today's society, we think of services I don't know, like a sacrifice or difficult labors. And, but um, what all the wisdom ways that I've uh, encountered around the world say is that fulfillment, personal fulfillment and uh, true service to the world are the two si sides of a single coin. You can't really have one without the other. That we, we, we are most fulfilled by finding our way to give or to give away to the world that which our truth about our life is. That, that kernel, that acorn, that... And when people find this truth, there's no doubt about that, is there? Um, that's a good question, you know. Um, in essence, there isn't any doubt about it. And, I mean, in the sense that uh, we are... A person is struck dumb by that glimpse. And uh, almost everybody feels, I think anybody would feel, would normally feel that um, this is too big for me, or this is too puzzling, this is too mysterious. Uh, and one way you know you've had that glimpse is that it feels like the biggest, the greatest blessing you could have ever have imagined to receive that knowledge. And simultaneously it feels like the greatest burden you could possibly have had laid on you. It just feels it's, a, it's, it's actually a type of violation of our, our um, identity and while at the same time, as I say, a great blessing. And so if you, you have an experience like that that feels like both a blessing and a burden, 
then you know that's what's happened to you. In your speaking about the violation of the identity in terms of being asked to go very far beyond what you, you think you are, is that right? What you yeah, thought you were. What you thought you yeah. were, right. Yeah, and all of a sudden it, it's, a, it's, a new, it's a new world, a new life. And the old, there's, there is no old you. Uh, you can't go back to it. Mm -hmm. you, go, you could try, but you'd probably fail. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the passage from uh, late adolescence, the cocoon, to early adulthood, which I call the apprentice at the wellspring, that passage I name soul initiation. It's the moment when we are initiated into our soul life, which begins with early adulthood. Uh, and again, the poet David White has this uh, extraordinary phrase. He says... Um, I believe he's talking about that moment in a poem called All the True Vows. And he says, um, in that moment, you can make a promise, it will kill you to break. And that promise, in essence, is that you're going to do everything you can to live the truth at the center of the image you were born with. That, that, that that experience that is both a blessing and a burden. You're going to do everything you can now to embody it, to live it into the world, uh, to bring it back to your society as, as your gift to the world. And once you make that promise, that utter commitment to do that, that's, I believe, that's the moment of soul initiation. It's not when the elders get together and declare you a man or a woman. Or Which give you they, the piece of paper after you step off the stage that says Ph.D. after. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the, the elders may or may not uh, provide you with a, a ceremony of that sort, but that's not what initiates us. It's, um, it's our relationship to our own psyche and our relationship to the world that, that initiates it, us. Well, we're going to have to take a short break. These breaks are coming up too, too quickly. Mm, yes. <laughs> I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are here talking with my guest, uh, Dr. Bill Plotkin, who is a psychologist and a vision quest guide. And how can people contact you, Bill? Well, the new book, Nature and the Human Soul, has um, we, we have put together a website for it. And uh, if you remember the title of the book, it's, that's it. It's natureandthehumansoul.com. Great. Well, we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. Please go to my website, www.attunement.biz, that's A-T-T-U-N-E-M-E-N-T dot B-I-Z, if you'd like to hear more conversations from this show. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are here talking with my guest, Dr. Bill Plotkin, who is a psychologist and a vision quest guide. And before the break, Bill, you were talking about early adulthood, the stage five in nature and the human soul. What comes next after that? Or is there things that you didn't talk about fully about stage five? Well, the, um, the task of stage five, uh, the developmental task, is in essence, now that you know the piece of the mystery that is yours to bring into the world, now, of course, the question is, how are you going to do it? And you, uh, in early adulthood, we need to uh, identify one or more cultural forms or practices or disciplines or careers or crafts which are um, effective ways of bringing our gift to our people in our particular society and in the in time and place where we live and given whatever our personal strengths and weaknesses are. How, how am I going to do it? Uh, and uh, in essence, what we end up doing is uh, finding some person or persons uh, and some discipline to apprentice to. It might be, we might be just apprenticing to one person, a master of one of the crafts that resonate with what our uh, destiny holds for us. So that's, that's the task of early adulthood, is to identify a delivery system, if you will, for our gift, to uh, study with a master uh, in a certain craft and to thereby uh, bring our gift to the world um, through our work and also just through our way of being. And um, I should say it's, it's something, one of the most important things to me and um, if as much a reason of why I wrote this book, Nature and the Human Soul, 
It um, has everything to do with the times we live in now, which everybody listening to this and anybody who's awake at all knows we live in a time of uh, tremendous crisis and equally great opportunity. I think we're at an evolutionary edge, uh, not just uh, obviously as a species. Gene Houston calls this jump time. Jump time. That's, we're in jump yeah, time. <laughs> we are in jump time, and, and the, uh, it remains to be seen, what, seen whether we succeed or not. Uh, one of my teachers, Thomas Berry, calls this um, the time of the great work, this, the 21st century, the time of the great work. Uh, and the, the, what he's referring to is the work of creating human societies uh, which can exist as an, what he calls an integral presence with the greater earth community. And, um, and you're talking about nature, not rather than other cultures. You're talking about the earth community as uh, Gaia. Yes, we, we have to create societies that are life-sustaining, um, in which us, we humans, take our place again uh, as members of this greater world. And another teacher uh, of mine, Joanna Macy, the uh, eco-philosopher and Buddhist scholar and deep ecologist, uh, she calls this the time of the great turning. Uh, and she uses the phrases that we're moving from our industrial growth society, which is suicidal, to uh, hopefully a life-sustaining society that's uh, based more in, in cooperation and compassion. So, um, so this time, I'll call it the time of the great turning, um, I believe what we need more than anything are uh, visionaries who are, who are creating uh, the, the new cultural forms that will lead us to a, a world that works for ourselves and other species. Uh, and I believe uh, the term visionary is essentially a uh, synonym or points to the same people I call true adults. All true adults are visionaries. And at this time of uh, cultural um, disintegration, all true adults are agents of cultural transformation. And all true adults are leaders. And not necessarily on a big stage. Some, some adults uh, lead in some kind of grand way and others in very quiet ways in families or farms and so on. Um, but uh, every one of us was born to have a peace. Every one of us who's alive today, I have no doubt, was born uh, with a piece of this great cultural change we need to make uh, in this century. And, and that's, why, um, that's really why I wrote the book, because I think it, it's, a, it's a map that can help people uh, mature into those adults and can help parents and teachers support children and teenagers to mature into adults. So that's um, early adulthood. Uh, real briefly, late adulthood is similar, except um, at that threshold passage between early and late adulthood is, is that crisis time when we realize that all the crafts, the delivery systems that we had learned from others are now no longer big enough for the creativity that the soul wants to bring forth into the world. And, uh, and, and then we have to leave behind, in a certain sense, our identity again. We have to leave behind the way we were doing it, the way we were imagining our lives, and uh, find our own never-before-seen ways of bringing our gift to the world. And that becomes the, the task of late adulthood. Um, and if you'd like, I could say a few things about elderhood. Please. Uh, elderhood, again, is a completely different thing. And this the, is stage seven? Seven and eight. These last two stages of life are completely different than adulthood and even more radically different than what we think of being a, what is a senior citizen or a retired person. This is a very, very different thing. At the highest, in a healthy society, the highest status in life is, is elderhood. And the elders have a, even the stage seven elders, which I call the master's in the grove, in the grove of elders, um, the masters uh, have even a greater task than adults do, because the uh, the elders have the task of caring for the soul of the more than human community, which we're talking about the entire web of life, 
It's the uh, human elders whose job is to see to it, for example, that the uh, balance is maintained in a good way between uh, the life and activities of the human village on the one hand and the greater earth community on the other. This is, I think it should be obvious to everybody why that's so essential. And if we don't have elders, it's also obvious what happens to the world. And the shortest way to say that, it's what we have now. Um, so elders are, are just an absolute um, uh, jewel or godsend to the entire earth community. And then stage eight. Stage eight uh, is a very, very mysterious, uh, uh, mystical stage. When we move from stage seven to eight, we move beyond doing to a life fully of being again, which is somewhat like the first stage of life, a life of being, um, especially if parents let their young children be. But in uh, stage eight, we're moving into a stage of being with full consciousness uh, and um, since we've moved beyond being in stage eight, there's no task at all. But there is something absolutely, absolutely essential that happens in that last stage, and that's what I call tending the universe, which um, it is as mystical as that sounds. And I've learned mostly about that um, by spending a few days with uh, the great cultural historian Thomas Berry, um, he's 93 now, and um, he, the way he explained it is that the, uh, the elder, the, or the sage in particular, um, his and her job is to coordinate, this is Thomas Berry's words, to coordinate the human realm with the cosmological realm. And I probably should leave it there because it's a great mystery. It's a little bit hard to explain. I, I do it in part through stories in that chapter. And besides, of course, um, it'd be great if people went out and bought the book. Yes. And uh, you could read there well, about and, Stage 8. And we are out of time, I'm sorry to say, but this has been quite a, an engaging conversation. I so much appreciate your being here with us. Um, how can people contact you, Bill? Yeah, thank you, Anthony. People can um, find me and my colleagues uh, at the website of my institute, which is Animus Valley Institute. It's in western Colorado. The website is www.animus, A-N-I-M-A-S, dot O-R-G, animus.org. Great. I'm Anthony Wright, and I've been your host today on Attunement, and we've been talking with my guest, psychologist and vision quest guide, Bill Plotkin. Please go to my website, www.attunement.biz, that's A-T-T-U-N-E-M-E-N-T, Dot .biz if you'd like to hear more conversations from this show